Good morning. Let's open up to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. This is where things get fun. I've, uh, I've been looking forward to this. I told you before, this is my favorite book, and I've always wanted to preach through it. I've done select lessons from it before. Uh, but I've never preached through the book, and so I'm looking forward to doing this. I'm not going to say it's going to be easy, and I'm not going to say that I'm going to leave a lot of questions kind of hanging uh, as we go through this, but uh, it's going to be good, and I I hope that you'll enjoy it just as much as I do uh, putting them together. Uh, But I'm going to approach this uh, differently than I would if I was, let's say we're on a Wednesday night Bible class and we're studying Revelation. Uh, this, uh, this series is going to be different than that would be because my main focus in this lesson or in this series is going to be on application. Uh, how can we uh, apply the book, the principles that we read about in Revelation to our lives as Christians? Uh, and because of the nature of our study in the Sunday morning hour, uh, we're not going to be just simply talking about the different images, the different interpretations of the images and things like that. And so we'll leave a lot wanting in that area. But I hope that whenever we leave the, the lesson that we'll get a better understanding of why Revelation is here and what we can learn from it today in 2023 rather than just looking at it from a first century perspective. Uh, so... Let me say this from the very get-go. The book of Revelation leaves a lot of room for disagreement. There are a lot of different views that people have about this book. Some of those views can be flat-out wrong, and other views not so much. Uh, I may hold a particular view about something in Revelation that you do not hold, and we may both be in constant agreement to disagree. And we may be in fellowship with God, and everything is great. Revelation, more than perhaps any other book in the Bible, leaves room for that kind of discussion. But I do want us to begin by thinking about something that I think a lot of people misunderstand about Revelation. I think it's an honest misunderstanding. I don't think people mean to misunderstand this idea, but I think it's just something that people naturally want to do because of the nature of the book. But I think if we can understand this from the very beginning, that it will make reading it and learning it and understanding it a little bit easier down the road. And it has to do with the way that we view the book and the way that we pronounce it. Maybe you've pronounced the book Revelations with an S on the end. That's not what this book is. This book is one revelation made up of many different images. Look at the first verse of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to Him to show His servants the things that must soon take place. We have one singular revelation made up of many different pictures, many different images. Think about it this way. Let's say Sarah and I are going to sit down and we are going to watch a movie. I don't say, Sarah, do you want to watch the movies? We're going to watch one movie. But that movie may have several different scenes. There may be a scene that takes place at the ocean. There may be a scene that takes place at the doctor's office. There may be a scene in that movie that takes place in a courtroom. There can be several different scenes, but they all make up one movie. And that's Revelation. It's one revelation, and John is being given several several different visions that make up that one revelation. 
I think if we can get that from the very get-go, it makes this book so much easier to handle, to deal with, and to understand. Because we are not talking about John seeing something now and then a little bit later on he's going to see something else. And then a little bit later on, well, he's going to be given another revelation. That's not the way that things work. I don't know how long it took for John to, be, to receive the revelation of all of these different things. But I do know this, that he was given everything that we read in this book in one particular setting, one particular revelation. And so I think if we can look at Revelation that way, then it will be a little bit more manageable for us. Which brings me to, well, what's the whole point of Revelation to begin with? Well, the whole point is those who overcome get to come over. In other words, if these Christians will overcome the suffering that's coming their way, then they will get to come over to the other side of eternity and spend it with their Lord. And the same images for us. The things that we deal with, while it may be the nature of those things that we deal with may be a little bit different than what these first century Christians were dealing with, but the the application is the same. When I overcome whatever tribulation faces my life and I overcome it faithfully, then I get to come over and spend eternity with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as well. That is the book of Revelation in one sentence. And I know when you read the book, it doesn't seem that simple, but it really is. That's the main idea that we need to keep in mind. And so I want us to begin the lesson today by looking at two completely different ways, two different ways that we can approach life. Now, the ways that we approach life, it may be the way that we approach our spiritual life, it may be the way that we approach our physical life, but we can approach life with two different concepts. The first concept may be that we approach life with comfort. We're completely comfortable in everything that we do. I am comfortable being the minister at this congregation. I hope that you will have me for a while because I don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. I'm very comfortable here. I love being here. Well, we may approach life that way too. Sometimes people approach life that way with so much comfort that they deal with things that they ought not to have to deal with. Sometimes people deal with relationships that they ought not have to deal with because they live their life in a comfortable mindset. That's one way that we can approach life. Another way that we can approach life is by being very impatient. Let's say we got the holidays coming up, and I would imagine if, if you're like me, I go to different places, and when you've got a bunch of people coming over to one particular house for a, for a gathering or a group, and it's cold outside, then most of the time we take our coats off, and there's probably a designated area in that house to place your coat. Maybe you go to a bedroom somewhere and you lay it on the bed, or maybe you lay it on a couch in the den somewhere. But because you're going to be there for a little bit, you take your coat off and you get comfortable and you lay that coat down. But let's say I'm going to somebody's house and let's just say I'm going to spend the night. Well, I know I'm going to be there for a while, but I walk in that house, I sit down, and 20, 30 minutes later after I got there, I've still got my shoes on, I've still got my coat on, I've still got my hat on. Nothing has changed about the attire that I'm wearing. And then somebody looks at me knowing that I'm going to be spending the night, and they say in jest, won't you take your shoes off and stay for a while? 
They know that I'm going to be there. There's no sense in me being fully dressed like that. Take off your jacket. Take off your shoes. But it's almost as if I'm sitting there waiting as if I'm going to get up and leave and go do something. Very impatient. Sometimes people will approach life that way too. I think this is why some people never obey the gospel. They know what they need to do. They understand what the Bible says. But maybe they're scared to death of commitment. And they don't want to give their, their lives over to a particular lifestyle or a particular way that they are to do things. And so because of their impatience and because of their wanting to continue to go through life with their own thinking or their own way, they never commit to anything. Those are two very different ways, but two very common ways that people in our world today approach life, whether it be physical life or spiritual life. But when we read Revelation, we understand what John is trying to get these Christians to do. He's trying to get them to face the future with faithfulness and urgency. As we live our lives as God's people, regardless of what the day brings, I need to make up my mind now that I face whatever my life brings me with faithfulness and urgency because I'm a Christian and Jesus is my Lord. And that challenges me to live with a completely different mindset, with a completely different attitude and everything that I do in life. John wants these Christians to understand this in the very first chapter before he ever starts talking about the suffering, before he ever starts talking about the things that they're doing well and the things that they're not doing so well. We'll talk about that next week in chapters 2 and 3. Before he talks about anything else, you need to be urgent in your life. And you need to decide to be faithful now, whatever the situation brings. And that's what chapter 1 is basically about. But there are a lot of things that John says, a lot of revelation we may say that he is given to communicate those different things. And so let's look at some of these things. I want us to begin first by looking at two lessons that I think we can gain from this very first chapter. And then after that we're going to get into what everybody wants to talk about and that's the vision of the Son of Man and what all of that means. But let's kind of lay the groundwork on what we can learn from this first about our own urgency and our own relevancy in life as God's people. Here's the first thing. We need to strive for relevancy. If I'm going to handle revelation correctly, I need to remember that it's an inspired document. Let's never forget that this is inspired by God. And what that means is it's going to be relevant for every single person that reads it, regardless of when they live. This book is relevant for the Christians in the first century who are being threatened physically for their faith. And it's relevant for you and me today who can worship in the comfort of a church building without any problems from the outside forces at all. It's relevant for both of us. And so we need to strive to see what that relevancy is and apply it to our own lives. John does this in so many different ways. But let's just look at a couple of verses in this chapter. Verse, verse 1, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John. 
This, these things were made known to John. That's the way the ESV says it. Some translations may say something different, but the word that's used here is the word for sign. John's favorite word for miracle is sign. He doesn't use miracle or wonder or something like that very often. John prefers the word sign. For example, in John's gospel, John has seven signs that he communicates in that gospel. The water to wine is the first one. The second one is the healing of the Roman official's son in chapter 4. You've got the healing of the lame man who had been lame for 38 years. He was healed by Jesus in John chapter 5. Seven times John gives these signs. Now why does he mention signs? Because John doesn't just want to call attention to the fact that this is a power or a wonder that Jesus performed that was miraculous. This is a miraculous power or wonder that Jesus performed because it points to something about Him that people need to understand. And case in point in the Gospel of John, the very opening verse says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. So what do these seven signs communicate? What's John's whole point in the Gospel of John? Jesus is God. He's not just a man. He's God. But these miracles are signs that communicate that idea. They're things that people can see. It's not just words on a page. John could preach till he's blue in the face. Jesus is God. But he's got these pictures. He's got these images that go with that. And in Revelation, it's very much the same thing. Because this revelation was signified, we may say, to John. When he's writing these things, he gives these Christians something that they can look at, a visual image that goes along with the relevancy of his message. Have you ever read a, a book? A lot of times it's a children's book, and you open up that book, and poof, this image pops up, and you've got this little paragraph about whatever you're seeing, but it's an image, it's a, it's a pop-up book. That's Revelation in a nutshell. We may not be able to see the physical image, but that's exactly what John is doing. I love what Ray Summers says. Ray Summers calls the book of Revelation a divine picture book. And that's exactly what it is. If we can get this image in our mind, we have more than just words. We have something that is connected to these words that communicates a visual image that goes along with it. But it's very relevant because of the way that John does it. I want you to see what's going to happen. We look on to verse 9 and we see something else. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is their partner in the tribulation. He uh, has a relationship to this, these problems that the Christians are facing. He's on the island of Patmos on account of the Word of God, he says. Patmos was a prison. That's basically what the island of Patmos was. It was a prison. And it may be that what John is saying is that John went to Patmos to preach the gospel. And that's why he's there. John was the first one to engage in prison ministry as we know it. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think what's going on here is John is a prisoner on the island of Patmos because he was preaching the gospel and got himself exiled by some Roman official. 
Why does that have relevancy for the audience here? And why is it relevant for us? Well, think about these Christians that are being called to go through certain things that they really don't want to go through. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm guilty of thinking, man, I wish I would have been an apostle. Somebody that could write an inspired document. Somebody that could perform miracles. Somebody that could go to a particular place, lay hands on another person, and distribute miraculous gifts to those people. How cool would that have been? And I can think about that difference between myself and an apostle in the first century and think, they were so much better than me. But that's not true, is it? Tribulation is something that every one of God's people goes through. It doesn't matter if I'm an apostle or not. Every one of us goes through those things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul said, When you suffer, I suffer. When you are comforted, I am comforted. I may be an apostle, but that doesn't matter. We are in this together. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul takes it up a notch. Paul said that he was willing to just put off all of these different things for the sake of the gospel. He was willing to forget about his life in Judaism as great and as padded as his stats were as a Jew. Forget about all of that. Paul may have even forgot about a lot of the inheritance that he would have gained from his family. But why did he do it? In verse 10 he said, so that I could share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Tribulation and suffering is so ingrained and entrenched in what God's people actually are as our very Savior Himself went through those things for our, on our behalf. And so when John writes these things to a group of Christians who are going to be persecuted physically for their faith, he is writing as a Christian who is physically persecuted for his faith. He has to remain faithful just like the church does. Them or us. And so it's very relevant, this message is, for all people because of the tribulation that's involved. We look at verse 11 and it says, uh, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Whenever we look on a map, by the way, we're going to see these seven churches basically in a circle. And so they're living in the same general area. They're connected to each other. They know about each other's situation. They're all dealing with a lot of the same things. They're individual congregations. And so their individual congregation may be struggling with things that others were not. But they're still expected to rely on each other, to understand each other, and the situations that are involved. It's very much like us, I think. We invite other congregations to our gospel meeting. Other congregations invite us to their gospel meeting. Because we all need the same thing. Regardless of what we are going through individually as a congregation, a congregation 10 miles down the road may be struggling to appoint elders. While another congregation has five or six of them, and whenever they need more, they just pull one from the list or a couple from the list of people waiting in line to be an elder. Everybody's situation is different as far as the individual congregation is concerned. But at the end of the day... Congregations that live in South, Southeast Missouri are going to be dealing with some of the same things. 
wasn't very much different for these seven churches, uh, seven churches in Asia. And so John is really striving to communicate this lesson, to communicate this message in a way that all of these Christians can be able to look at it, interact with it, and find not just stability with their own relationships and their own congregations respectively, but for all of them to have that same kind of relationship. Here's another lesson that we learned from this. That we need to give urgent attention to what's relevant today. Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 1 again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. Some translations will say, must shortly come to pass. The word that's used here for soon is basically communicating two points of time. You've got two points of time, but the emphasis is on the relatively short amount of time that takes place between those two intervals, between those two points in time. And so these things are not going to happen years and years and years down the road. These things are going to happen in a short enough amount of time where the Christians that John's writing to needs to be ready for it now and prepared for it now. Not wait before you get prepared for it, but prepare for it now because it's going to take place in a short amount of time. You look at verse 3 and it says it again, for the time is near or is at hand. You may remember uh, uh, Matthew chapter 3 with both Jesus's and John's ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? Is at hand. Same idea here. It's now. It's coming. Do something about it now. That's what John's audience needs to do. You look at verse 3, and it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Why read it aloud? Because books in the first century are very, very, very expensive. Not a whole lot of people that have books in the first century go to a library somewhere to hear it read. Or if you want to hear the Old Testament read, go to a synagogue where the copy of the Hebrew Bible is going to be waiting to be read. Not everybody has a copy of Scripture. And so it needs to be read, read aloud. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul told the Colossians, hey, when you get done reading this letter, send it to the Laodiceans and have them read it too. And by the way, the one that I wrote to Laodicea, Get it and read it to you as well. Exchange these things. But you have to read these things aloud because not everybody can read and not everybody has a copy because they're very expensive. But you don't just read it aloud, you hear it and keep it. Now that sounds kind of redundant, doesn't it? Well, why are you hearing it and then keeping it? Well, because when you hear something, in the Jewish mind, hearing implies obedience. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, Moses said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, when they heard that, they would not just say, I need to listen to this or I need to hear it, but I need to do it too. Automatically, hearing and obedience are intertwined in the Jewish mind. And so once they hear and obey it, now they've got to keep it. 
They've got to keep it in mind and they've got to keep it in their feet and in their legs because everything that they do is going to be wrapped up in this message that they are being called to not just hear and believe, but to interact with in their lives. So, you've got them and you got a need to not just hear what's relevant, but to give urgent attention to what's relevant in their specific day at that point in time because things are about to come soon. And by the way, in Revelation 22, notice some of the last words that Jesus says in this book. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The beginning of this book is tied into what we hear and what we keep and the relatively short amount of time that these things are going to take place. The very end of the book communicates the exact same thing. And so the book begins and it ends with these same thoughts. This same urgent, relevant thought. Well, let's move on to the vision itself. And go back to chapter 1, because that's where we're going to be. What makes this vision of the Son of Man urgent and relevant here, in this particular part of the book? Well, first of all, you've got His transcendence over time. In verse 8, it says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega, basically the first and last words of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end. I'm not held by time. I transcend time. I'm alive now and I'm going to be alive forevermore. Number two, transcendence over death. What does he say in verse 17 or verse 18? He says that he's the living one. He died and behold, he is alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. What do we have when we have the keys to something? Can you get in my house unless I give you the key to my house? I hope not. If you can, by the way, let me know because that's a problem. I need to fix it. But keys allow you to have access to a particular thing. But there's a lot more than that being communicated here. If I give you the keys to my car, you're not only able to open the door to my car, you're able to sit in the driver's seat, put the key in the ignition, put it in drive, and take off. It gives you full control of that car if I give you the keys. Basically what Jesus is saying here is I have control over death and the realm of the dead, Hades itself. And He has those keys because He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He transcends time, but because He's conquered that death for us on our behalf. So he has transcendence over time, but he also has care for his church. In verses 12 and 13, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. In verse 16, it says, In his right hand, he held seven stars. What does that mean? You're going to come to appreciate it when John tells you what something means. 
And in verse 20, he tells us exactly what these seven golden lampstands or candlesticks and seven stars are. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Where is Jesus standing? In the midst of the lampstands. In the midst of His church. He stands as the guardian, as the protector, as the Messiah who cares for His church. He's holding the angels of those churches in His right hand. Now what those angels are, I don't know. It may be that because angel just simply means messenger, that these seven churches were communicating with one another. And there were different messengers from these churches going around, making sure, checking on each other to make sure that everything was good and they were kind of taking care of one another. I don't think so. Because in the Old Testament, we've got people like Michael, Gabriel, these angels that do God's bidding on behalf of His people. So I think that's what we have going on here. I don't know for sure. But we do know this, it all comes back to God, to Jesus, to our Savior, caring for His church. And so why is this vision of the Son of Man relevant? Why give that? Because it communicates all of these things. And it gives our minds, and the, and the, the Christians' minds in the first century, that are going to be dealing with these problems, it gives them a little bit more comfort and ease of mind and stability as they move forward facing the problems that they're going to be facing. And so you've got the relevant vision. It's an urgent, it's a relevant vision. I want to say something here. I'm out of time, but let me say something very quickly before we look at these things. If I try to understand the book of Revelation without studying the Old Testament, my interpretation is going to be wrong. The Old Testament is referenced over 400 times in this book. If I'm going to understand it, I've got to use the Old Testament. And that being said, this vision of the Son of Man is taken directly from the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10. And when you read those two chapters, you'll see the, the significance and the connections immediately. You won't have to look for them. They'll be there immediately. And so, what about it then? Well, Jesus is our great high priest, according to verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The angel in, in Daniel chapter 10 is dressed the same way. And in Exodus chapter 28, the high priest wore these same things. And so what's being connected is that Jesus is the great high priest. But He doesn't just perform the priestly duties on our behalf. He is the priestly duties. He was the sacrificial lamb that was slain. He didn't put a lamb on the altar. He put Himself on the altar, figuratively speaking. He is our great high priest. In the very next verse... The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His wisdom is being communicated. In Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 31, Solomon said that uh, the gray hair is a crown of glory and it is one in a righteous life. Sometimes we look at gray hair and think it's a bad thing. But gray hair actually shows that I've got a lot of wisdom. 
that I've been there, I've done that, I've learned a lot throughout my life. How much different would 1 Kings chapter 12 look if, if Rehoboam would have listened to the wise men instead of listening to the younger men? The kingdom would have never split. Now God had plans and everything worked out for His glory and for His purposes, but none of those things would have ever happened if He would have just listened to these people with gray hair. Perfect uh, vision. His eyes were like a flame of fire. He sees our situation and everybody's situation perfectly. You remember Mark chapter 4 when these disciples are in a boat and there's this big storm tossing this boat all around? Jesus is sleeping in the bottom of the boat. I mean, why would He do that? So they run up to Him and they say, Master, Master, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus doesn't really rebuke them. Instead, He thinks, man, why are you guys such little faith? Stands up, rebukes the wind and the sea. In other words, He basically tells them, look, don't fret. Everything's going to be okay. I know every situation and I know it perfectly. He sees everything the way that it needs to be seen. He knows this situation that these seven churches are going to be dealing with better than they know it themselves. In verse 15, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined furnace. And then His voice was like the roar of many waters communicating His authority. In Ezekiel chapter 43 and verse 2, God's voice is like the sound of many waters. If you ever picked up a seashell on the beach and listened to it? You can hear the beach and it sounds like a roar, doesn't it? In no way is that the same thing as this is, but it kind of gives us something to think about. When we think about these roar of many waters... Everything in this vision and everything in this chapter is preparing, God's preparing John and by communication and by association with God and the revelation that He has been given, John is preparing these Christians for the things that they are going to face. Because it's easy a lot of times as God's people for us to forget just how much Jesus cares and just how much He is there, and just how much protection He offers to us. Sometimes it's hard for me to, to, to admit that I forget just how powerful my Savior is. But I can think that way from time to time. One thing that I love about the book of Revelation is it reminds me how powerful my Savior is, and how much He cares about my situation, as irrelevant as I may think it seems to Him, as small as it is compared to the sufferings that He endured, He still cares just as much about me and my situation as He did His situation in His own day when He went to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And so if you are here this morning and you need a little bit of hope, a little bit of faith, a little bit of stability as you face your... Christian life. Jesus is the answer. He was the answer 15 years ago. He's still the answer today and He will be the answer for all eternity into the future. If you need Him this morning, don't wait.